0: This is a very strange and frustrating story. To have your family member stolen and murdered, then missing.
1: I'm Connie Walker, and this is Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. It's such a mystery, such an impossible task. Please, help us find her. Finding Cleo. If you'd like to hear more, you can find the full season wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is a CBC podcast.
3: Dante, Anine, Boujou, hello and welcome. This is Unreserved. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. This week on Unreserved, we're going back in time, baby, way back to one of our very first episodes of this space for Indigenous voices. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Unreserved turns 10 years old this year. And we're looking back at how far we've come and getting excited about where we're going. Yeah, let's be Unreserved.
4: Dante Rosanna, my dear friend.
0: On <laughs> the what a nice introduction.
5: <laughs> I missed you so much. Thanks for having me back.
4: Things have changed
3: a lot in 10 years a different format, different team, different theme song. But what's still the same is our commitment to telling Indigenous stories indigenously and welcoming everyone into the circle. Let's walk down memory lane and hear how many of the stories from our first season still resonate today and how others represent a marked change in how Indigenous people are represented in media across Turtle Island. The year is 2014, when I was a younger dear child. Welcome to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, the show that takes you behind the headlines of Canada's top-trending Indigenous stories. I'm your host, Rosanna Deerchild, a top Indigenous in my own mind. If this is your first time listening to us and you're thinking, how on earth did I not know this show existed? I am so freaking excited. Well, I like your enthusiasm, but this is actually only our second episode ever. So for those of you who joined us last week, welcome back. For those of you who are just tuning in, let me fill you in on what Unreserved is all about. Here on Unreserved, we recognize that Canada is changing. Indigenous voices are growing stronger, and the people, places, and issues, once hidden in plain sight, are now the talk of the nation. So this place is a new space that we are making together. On Unreserved, we'll bring you Aboriginal stories from the four directions of the country. We'll introduce you to new faces, places, culture, politics, and ideas from an Indigenous view. More than a new show, Unreserved is a meeting ground where we're all in the circle. So without reservation, welcome, bujoo, anin, and tanse. Today on Unreserved,
4: you've inherited something very powerful. There's no easy way to say it.
2: Spit it out! You're Kagagi.
3: Move on over, Spider-Man. We'll meet the guy who is responsible for bringing a new Aboriginal superhero to the forefront. Calling all stargazers, we've all heard of the Big Dipper and the North Star, but what about the sweat lodge? Find out how you can see Cree constellations. And tired of seeing negative depictions of indigenous peoples, Winnipeg artist Casey Adams is taking new pictures to challenge the public's perception. Ah, memories. Good times. Good times. That was the intro to Unreserved circa October 2014. At the time, we also had a weekly appearance from somebody you might recognize, Cree journalist Connie Walker. She was the CBC's lead reporter in what was then called the Aboriginal Unit, now CBC Indigenous. The idea was to give a little more context and background to some of the Indigenous news across the country. In this next segment, we'll hear about the climax of a precedent-setting story out of Brantford, Ontario. Connie was covering a court case prompted by McMaster Children's Hospital. The hospital was asking for the Children's Aid Society to force an 11-year-old Indigenous girl to undergo chemotherapy. In the end, the court did not rule in favor of the hospital. Instead, her mother's plan to seek traditional healing to treat the cancer was upheld by the court. Here's where things were at as of October 16, 2014, about a month before the final ruling. Hi, Connie.
1: Hi, Rosanna.
3: So you've been following the case of a First Nations girl and her family rejecting chemo and McMaster Hospital going to court to force her back into treatment. Can you give us a quick summary?
1: Well, essentially, if that sounds familiar, it's because it is familiar. Four months ago, Michaela Salt, another First Nations girl from the New Credit First Nation, was in a very similar position as this young girl whose details uh, we're hearing in court today. Now, in, in Michaela's case, when CAS investigated, they decided that they would not intervene and that she and her family would be free to pursue traditional Indigenous medicine. However, in this case, McMaster has taken CAS to court, and they're trying to force the family back into treatment into chemotherapy treatment now the family is actually currently not even in the country they're not taking part in the court proceedings they're at a holistic health institute in florida receiving naturopathic treatments for for this deadly disease
3: Hmm. now yesterday a publication ban on court proceedings was lifted what can you tell us about what's been happening inside the courtroom
1: Well, a lot of the the nitty-gritty details have been testified to in court uh, over the last week. Um, Doctors from McMaster have gotten into quite detailed uh, descriptions of the young girl's uh, diagnosis and prognosis. They said that uh, if she continued with her chemotherapy treatment, she would have a 90 to 95% chance of survival. Mm. But uh, the longer that's delayed, that that percentage goes down. And if she doesn't return to treatment at all that she has zero chance of survival. We've also heard from Indigenous uh, medicine experts who who spoke to their experience about uh, being witness to how traditional medicine has been used to treat various forms of cancers in communities um, for for years and uh, about the efficacy of traditional medicine. And today, Andrew Koster, the director of Grant um, Children's Aid Society, is on the stand defending their decision not to intervene in this case. Mm.
3: So why is this story so important, Connie?
1: Well, I think that it's, you know, it's obviously incredibly important because, um, you know, they say that a, a life of a, a little First Nations girl is at stake here. And, and that's why McMaster has gone to court. They say that uh, without this action, that, that, you know, her life will be lost. But I think this is also important, um, just, I mean, going back to Michaela Salt, I, I think there's been some speculation that if Ms. McMaster is successful in, in this application at court, and if the judge rules in their favor, that that may have implications for Michaela and her family, who right now have been, you know, essentially free to, to pursue their own traditional medicine. But also, I did an interview with this young girl's mother who, because of a, a publication ban, I'm not actually allowed to identify her name. And she said, you know, this case is so important because it speaks to the rights of Indigenous people and the Indigenous right to choose your own treatment. And she said, you know, she doesn't actually recognize the court proceedings that are happening here today. And that's why she's not participating in them, because she doesn't feel they have any jurisdiction over her inherent right uh, to choose her own medical treatment for her and her daughter. So I think there are, you know, a number of reasons why these proceedings are so important.
3: Mm, Thank you so much, Connie.
1: You're welcome,
3: Rosanna. That was Connie Walker from October 2014. She's Cree from Okanee's First Nation in Saskatchewan and a former CBC journalist now working for Gimlet Media, a podcast division inside of Spotify. Her investigative podcast, Stolen, recently won a Peabody Award and a Pulitzer Prize. Yes, that's Pulitzer. Sis has mad storytelling skills. And we've got big plans for a season-ender party extravaganza in June. Connie's definitely on the honored guest list. Make sure to follow along with the show and stay part of our Facebook family for more info about that. Let's get back to our show's second-ever episode. We'll meet a brand-new superhero on the scene. Well, at least he was brand-new ten years ago. You're listening to Unreserved, the radio show that tells you what the Coup kids are doing in Indigenous Canada. I'm Rosanna Deerchild, super-Indigenous nerd. It's my superhero identity. What? Who doesn't pretend they're a superhero once in a while? Don't even lie. Well, at least some of us did. People like Jay O'Jig, unfortunately, Aboriginal superheroes, not always cool. When O'Jig was a kid, there was a character on the TV cartoon Super Friends. This character learned the power of his people from an elder.
5: What do we do? Time has come to test your manhood, young one. One sprinkle of this ancient Indian powder, and you will
6: be
4: able to handle the Grizzly without weapons. You have only to cry out the word, Enecchok, and you will be the most powerful brave of all. Enecchok!
3: That never works, by the way. Apache Chief and his Indian Powder of the 70s might not be considered one of the finest moments in superheroics. But flash forward to 2014. J. Ojig creates a new Aboriginal superhero.
4: You've inherited something very powerful. There's no easy way to say it. Spit it out! You're Kagagi. Uh, who? Kagagi. The Raven. You don't speak Anishinaabeg. You're the only one who can stop them. Channel your power. Get angry, son.
3: And so it is. Kagagi is born. And he is awesome. Artist and graphic novelist Jay is from the Kitigan-Zibi Anishinaabeg First Nation in Quebec. Jay has seen his creation go from the comic book to animation. Kagagi is the star of a new TV show coming to Aboriginal People's Television Network or APTN tomorrow. Jay Ojig joined CBC Ottawa's All in a Day host, Alan Neal.
7: Can you describe for people what is happening when Kagagi transforms,
4: when when he becomes the sure. hero? Kagagi is basically, um, it's a bit of a different take on superheroics apart from just having a First Nations or Algonquin bent. It's uh, kind of like... A horror twist, a supernatural twist that I think is lacking. So instead of fighting supervillains, he's fighting monsters. He's fighting creatures. And what happens is he unleashes this this power that he's inherited that makes him a champion of his people in Ishnabe, which literally means the people, and he becomes this hero. And the reason he becomes a superhero is because that's what, to him, a hero looks like. He's a modern kid, grew yeah. up watching Spider-Man, Batman, and that stuff. So when he becomes a hero, he becomes what? He's familiar with it's what it's through his his lens through and his this lens. is what what a hero means to him. Uh, it, it, the, there's a mention there of tapping into his anger. So is is the character's power born out of anger? Basically, what it is is that the. As he's going through these changes, it's having uh, effects on his personality and how he conducts himself. And one of the things is it's leading to temper flare-ups. It's just him kind of adjusting to change, which we're using, I would say, as kind of a metaphor for what he's going through in life. As a teenage boy, he's going through, you know, these mood swings and things. We don't really have anyone, uh, any Grizzlies test our metal as First Nations people or sprinkle Indian powder on us. But just like any other kid, you know, we go through these changes. And we're using the, the, the metamorphosis into a superhero to kind of uh, examine that. And play it out writ large on the on the screen. How different is that from when Jay Ojik gets angry? Is that is that when you you find your power usually? I, I think the, the difference <laughs> is that when Kagagi gets angry, people care. When I get angry, people are just like, "Yeah, we'll call you back." It's um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about Jay Ojik as a kid. Wait, Apache chief
7: is on television. Uh, maybe the, the characters in Alpha Flight you're able to see the, the Aboriginal characters. Were there were there other Aboriginal superheroes around you?
4: That I can recall, no. And that was part of the reason why uh, I did what I did when I started doing comics. Uh, I started self-publishing black and white books uh, as low rent an operation as you can have just based on what I could put together. And the reason why was because I got into comics pretty heavy when I was about – I was very, very young, like four or five years old. Huh. And my mother says I started writing stories at around five. I don't recall that. My memory's not that great. I don't even remember what I had for, for breakfast this morning. But <laughs> – that's what I'm told. So basically, the idea was I got really into these things, and we we didn't see my brother and I, uh, we didn't see any characters that looked like us, and so we started kind of sketching, uh, you know, creating our own little characters of like what we would, you know, what we would be like if we grew up and became superheroes. Basically, if I'm gonna be, if I'm gonna be honest yeah. about it, you know, that's kind of what kids do. And over time, it kind of morphed and it became different things. And I just kind of looked at it as like, all right. Let's take a shot at it. Let's try doing a comic, and and create something that First Nations kids can look at and say, "Hey, this is our guy." And at the same time, non-native readers can look at it and say, "Hey, that's pretty cool." You know, um, it's not a it's not uh, exclusive in that way. It's... I, I would imagine
7: part of what was frustrating about some of the characters when they were introduced is certainly I, I, I say this as a, a non-Aboriginal reader of comics. You would read them, and the characters always the powers or their identity was always tied completely to who they were as an Aboriginal individual. You didn't, when you say, I am Apache chief, there was no guy walking in and saying, I am white, united church individual. Like there, there was no, there, it was always tied to, to who they were rather than their power. And I wonder what that was like for you as a reader.
4: Um, I think for us, it was basically just, you know, we looked at something like, um, you know, say for example, um spider man where um he's just basically a guy he gets bitten by a spider and he gains the powers of uh you know mm-hmm. whatever they say a proportionate spider, I guess a six <laughs> yeah. foot spider would be able to lift cars um so for us, it was kind of just like. Basically, if we're gonna have First Nation superheroes, um, why couldn't he be Wolverine? Why couldn't he be the Hulk? Why couldn't he be? Yeah. You know, why would it necessarily have to be an intrinsic uh, deal that would be related to his his race or or anything like that? His religion. Um, let's face it: when we look at, say, Batman with Bruce Wayne, we don't know what his uh, his racial heritage, what his background is. We know he's European, but we don't know from where. Right. We don't know his uh, religious beliefs. We don't know his political leanings. Even though, let's face it. We all kind of know he's conservative, <laughs> in Wayne manner.
7: That it's a it's a purely conservative uh, environment altogether. He, he's a big
4: industrialist, you know. It's him and Tony Stark, man. <laughs> That's what they do.
7: I I, I had a look at the, at the, the trailer today. It looks like it's going to be a lot of a lot of fun. But I noticed the character did go through some transformations here. Can you describe how different he looks on screen than for somebody who's picked
4: up your graphic novel? Well, in terms of the television series. Um, I wrote and drew the uh, the graphic novel that the show was based on. Uh-huh. And I sat down and I was like, all right, well, we need character designs for the show. And I was like, let's just use the character designs from the book because that's what they look like. And um, so I basically, you know, drew the same thing. And for me, I'm coming into something new. And the show itself is a computer generated um, computer graphic, uh-huh. you know, 3D animation. It's not hand-drawn animation. There's certain rules and certain things that come with that. And (laughs) I don't know much about that world. I was acclimating myself at that time. And I handed the animators this, you know, perfectly nice little drawing of a guy with long hair. And he has these tassels on his wrists and are long and flowy. And our animators were like, well, we can't do uh, that stuff. That's going to cost a lot of money. And I was like, really? So I guess um, they have to animate each strand of hair individually. And they were looking at me like, we're not doing Kung Fu Panda. That thing took like five or six years. (laughs) So uh he uh he decided to get a little modern Kagagi and he started looking into ponytails. We went out and we made a three D animated um scrunchie and put that in the back of his hair and he, he rocks the ponytail now. <laughs> so
7: he's got shorter
4: hair and wings
7: as wings. as well because he needed this more stuff to take place in the yeah, sky. So that's <laughs> that was
4: yeah, that was another thing was uh if you read the the comic, which is still available through Arcana, if you go to our website, just a little plug. Um just go and search Kagagi there. Uh, basically, the majority of it takes place, uh, a lot of it takes place in the forest. And he's like kind of swinging through trees on those tassels and running around fighting monsters. And again, the animators are like, trees are pretty tough to do. Can, is there a way we can have the, the majority action take place in the sky? And I was like, well, Kagagi means the raven. So it organically makes sense if, if he has wings. So in the TV show he has wings. Uh, <laughs> He's got wings. That's that's how <laughs> it when superheroes that's that's how it, you know you can just write that in. Like well now we need him to have wings, so he he grew wings.
3: Wings, totally awesome cape. I don't need your stinking cape. I got wings. That's why I'm not a superhero. Too much ego. Jay Ojig is the creator of Kagagi the Raven, an Aboriginal superhero who will become an animated series on APTN starting tomorrow at 10 a.m. Well, it's only fitting after talking about superheroes to play a song by a superhero, sort of. Superman is a member of the Crow Nation. He fuses his culture's music with hip-hop. An impossible mix? Not to Superman. This week, the very popular website Upworthy featured one of his unique songs. Here's Superman with Prayer Loop Song. (laughs)
6: Way don't, I don't, way I do I I I I I I don't, way I don't, way I don't, I don't, I don't,
4: it right now, struggling, feel like giving it right now, I pray for you pray that you come back home, I pray that you understand that you're never alone I pray for the single mothers and the dead be dead, drop the kids off and go party gets me mad, so I pray pray for peace, and pray for change keep on praying when everything stays the same, and I pray for the pastors and all of the churches and those who cry on song following her, I pray for you, pray for the sick and the poor pray for the rich man who don't give to the Lord, and I pray for wisdom, and I Pray for power, and I pray for being ready in the final hour, and I pray for those who that
3: is Superman from the Crow nation and I'm Rosanna Deerchild looking back on 10 years of unreserved the episode you're hearing right now was recorded in October of 2014 back then we were the little team that could collecting the top indigenous stories from across CBC and bringing them together under one umbrella. That's why you'll hear several other hosts in our earlier shows. Like in this next segment, with the morning show host from Winnipeg, Marcy Marcusa chats with my friend Casey Adams about her transformative art.
1: Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts.
3: This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. Getting to know the movers and shakers behind Canada's top trending Indigenous stories. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. And I move, I shake, and I groove. Just not all at the same time, because I don't want to pull a muscle. Casey Adams is a Winnipeg artist who is challenging you to change your view about Indigenous peoples. Her latest project is a series of portraits she calls Perception. Casey spoke with CBC Manitoba's Marcy Marcusa on Information Radio.
0: Let's talk about the project, Perception. How did it come about? It has been in the works for a very, very long time. Um, I realized that, um, you know, most of us, we make snap judgments and uh, um, sometimes it can be hurtful. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to um, give a voice to people who you don't hear about in the Indigenous community. And that would be the people who are, you know, not in the news. The people who are holding down a job, they have a mortgage, they're paying taxes, they put themselves through school. they You don't hear about them in the, in, in the news. Yeah, the pictures uh, are all
6: people's faces, uh, community members' faces. And in one picture, the pe- person is uh, stoic looking, serious looking, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And the second picture, they smile and their whole face opens up and they're quite close up. Can you give us an example, though, of the captions you've used to sort of contrast those two images?
0: Well, I I think what's important, which I I don't really talk too much about, but uh, in the process, what I do is I I ask the model to look at the camera and I start asking them questions. I start saying, okay, now I want to imagine what it would be like if somebody called you a drunk or a dirty Indian or something like that, throwing racist comments at you. And I get immediate reaction. And then those are the the images that I've captured. Then I turn around and I say, um, the one uh, Maegan, um, I asked him, think about your fiance. And immediately, that first shot I got was his smile. I mean, and so it's it's really about capturing really how they see themselves. And, and I'm laughing out of joy because I'm looking at some of these photos while you're saying that, and I
6: yeah. could see how a person's face would change. So the first photo, this is Leah Gazan's, just for an example for the listeners. Uh, it says, Lazy Indian with a question mark. Look again. And you click to the second photo, uh, which is uh, Leah Gazan, and uh, it says a mother, sister,
0: auntie, professor, community leader, so social activist, and circuit training goddess. She is. She certainly (laughs) is. She is the least laziest person I've ever met in my entire life. So we kind of worked on that title together. It was her that chose it.
6: One more example, because I think it's so powerful, the contrast. Uh, Tax burden? Look again. And this is Brendan Manekizic, a husband, father, son dancer, defender of treaty rights, homeowner, and a Golden Jubilee Medal recipient. That's right. His face is blown up with a smile.
0: He actually wanted me to put in a great cuddler. But... (laughs) (laughs) I said all the ladies would be going after him. So I said that for the sake of his wife, I decided not to put that one in.
6: How challenging is it to change the public's perception uh, of Indigenous people?
0: Well, you know, honestly, I think it has to happen at home. And I think that's the reason why I did this piece was if we, every single person takes that, just that one step and just trying to change our perception. I know when I was growing up as a teenager, I used to think the same way. Being Indigenous, I felt the same way, which is kind of terrible to think. You thought
6: the same way as sort of the stereotypes in the first pictures? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And uh, because uh, I'm generations um, raised with shame. Shame of who who I am and uh, where I come from. And uh, it's taken many people in the community, many friends, and uh, teaching me how wrong that was. And so I'm trying to make amends.
6: How important is the admission of that?
0: It's it it was very difficult. I, I often tell people I came out of the Aboriginal closet. And uh I've been trying to um stand up and be proud of where I come from and I'm trying to be a role model to others out there and especially within my family too. Um, you know, many, many generations of of, of guilt and shame out there.
6: Here's how I'm gonna say goodbye to you. I'm gonna read yours. You ready? Yes. Here's uh, here's your face looking serious and dismayed. It says squaw. Look again. Casey Adams, OG Cree, a wife, mother, twin, artist, educator, homeowner, taxpayer, curler, who paid for university herself. Thanks for coming in this morning. Thanks for having me. Maybe you can teach me how to curl.
3: <laughs> Casey Adams is a Winnipeg artist. That's a 2014 interview between her and information radio host Marcy Marcusa. And this is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today, we dug deep, deep in the archive for a special encore presentation of Unreserved. It's our second show ever for a national audience. That was 10 years ago, and creator, I was nervous. But listening to these first days on the show makes me also a little nostalgic. It makes me realize how far we've come as Indigenous storytellers. Back then, we were just beginning to claim space and reclaim our voices. It was a steep climb. Now, just a decade later, we are everywhere. Radio, podcasts, big and small screens, and of course, music. Songs are just one way we share our stories from people like Leela Gilday. The Northern Songstress is one of many we have shared over the years.
6: Darkness falls, how we travel.
3: This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, the show that tells you stories. From an Indigenous view, I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Speaking of Indigenous views, what do you see when you look up at the night sky? The North Star? Or maybe you recognize the Big Dipper, the Little Dipper, and Orion's Belt. But when Wilf Buck looks up, he sees very different stars and constellations. He sees Going Home Star, the Fisher Stars, and the Sweat Lodge, to name but a few. Cree Stars. I like the sound of that. I wonder if there is a deer star. Mr. Buck is a science educator with the Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Center, and he is Cree from the Opaskwayak Cree Nation. He took CBC Manitoba's weekend morning show host Terry McLeod on a tour of his Cree-stellations.
2: How did you first discover that the constellations that Cree people saw were different from the ones that people in the South saw?
5: Well, what initially got me started was an uh, elder named Murdo Scribe from Kinnisayosuyupi, uh, uh, Norway House. And uh, one of the uh, legends he was talking about was, uh, had to do with the Big Dipper, mythology called Ochi uh, Jagosak, the Fisher Stars. And that legend talks about, at one point, uh, we didn't have no summer in this part of the world. And so Ochi, uh, the fisher, went down with uh, some of his buddies down south because he heard there was summer down south. And he went and bought a piece of summer back for us. And uh, a lot of anthropologists liken this to an uh, actual living memory of when there was actually no summer in this part of the world, something called the Ice Age.
2: So these fisher stars, you mean the fisher the animal, not fisher the person who fishes?
5: Fisher, fisher the animal, yeah. yeah.
2: So when, you, but when you look up or when he looked up, Murdo Scribe, mm-hmm. he didn't see the Big Dipper, he saw the Fisher stars.
5: Right, exactly, yeah, and because that's what he was taught. Wow. And that, that, that's what got me intrigued with this, because uh, I, I was just listening to what he had to say, and then I realized that everybody in the Northern Hemisphere looked up at night at the same group of stars. So therefore, everybody must have their own interpretations of these stars, because... Uh, at that time, there was no mass communication, so a lot, a lot of people didn't hear about Roman and Greek mythology, and and so, uh, so being being uh, that those thought processes going through my head, I uh, I started uh, asking more about uh, the various constellations to a lot of the elders in, in the ceremony, and a lot of these relate to uh, the ceremony as part of the ceremony. They uh, s- uh, identify groups of stars and constellations.
2: So which other ones then, because there are a whole array of uh, paintings down the hallway here.
5: So these ones here are the Pleiades in star maps, the Seven Sisters. And uh, this here uh, tells a story, uh, the legend of uh, Atago Sisqueo, star woman. Uh, one of the First Nations beliefs is that we originate from the stars. We're star people, and uh, we come here to learn in this physical form to learn and experience things that uh, beings of energy is, is what we are, are, are. We call these atchagosak in my language, and uh, inside of us we have something called atchak, which is the spirit. So these are, we're related to, to the stars in that way.
2: I feel like I've seen this star before on star blankets and such.
5: Yes, exactly. This, uh, when Star Woman came down, she bought with her the original star blanket. But as you can see uh, on the painting here, the depiction, this uh, star has seven points. And it represents the uh, seven stars that are visible to the naked eye in the sky. And uh, originally these were painted on uh, buffalo hides, bear hides, moose hides, all kinds of hides. Well, with the introduction of cloth, they tried to sew a seven-pointed star, and they found that it was very difficult to do. It took a long time. But they also found that if they used even number points, then they could fold the star in half and even the halves out against each other, and it would, it would, it would be a lot less time-consuming. And so nowadays, you stars, you'll see, what are eight points, 12 points, 16 points, 24 points.
2: Now, this one behind us, this looks like a, a goose.
5: Yes, this is called Nishka. And uh, Niska flies in uh, the Goose's path, Niska Meskinau. The goose's path is the uh, Milky Way. And uh, th- this is equivalent to uh, Cygnus, the swan. You can see the uh, northern cross right here? Yes. <laughs> and so uh, th- the reason they, they call this uh, Niska and they call them M- Milky Way Niska Meskina was uh, during the, uh, the fall and the spring when the, the migratory birds were flying. At night time y- you could hear the geese flying at night and sometimes they'd look up in the sky and they'd see the silhouette moving across that path, the Milky Way.
2: Fascinating that you can look up into the sky and see different constellations than the ones that I've been taught to yeah. see. Here
5: are the things I tell the students like uh, we attend about 55 schools in Manitoba band operating schools and the very first thing before I start my presentation, I talk to the students and tell them that uh, every culture under the sky had their own stories about the sky. In Inouye, the Cree people were no different. Uh, the Romans and Greeks were the lucky ones who got put in the school curriculum, but every, uh, everybody understood about the stars. So this one here? This one here is uh, the Pleiades again. And uh, in this, this uh, depiction, this legend, they talk about uh, a group of stars in the sky, usually in the fall time and in the winter time. There's the sweat lodge.
2: You mean uh, there's a constellation in the shape of a sweat lodge? Yeah, yeah, a sweat can we walk down and have yeah. a look at that?
5: So, this is uh, the sweat lodge, and uh, I guess the equivalent with Roman Greek mythology is the Corona Borealis. And so, the sweat lodge is in the sky usually in the fall time and in the winter time. And if you look at up in the sky in those times of year, you can see the sweat lodge, you can see the altar, which is the North Star, and you can see the sacred fire, which are the sweat lodge rocks, which are the Pleiades. So, you'll see them in a line right across the sky.
2: Now. The star that you know European derived people, the star that we call the North Star, you have a different name for it, right?
5: Yes, we do. Yeah.
2: What do you What do you call it?
5: Well, there's uh, various names depending on what it is you're talking about. What what uh, point is to be made? One of the common names is uh, Kiwaiten. Mm-hmm. Kiwaiten. The word, root word for Kiwaiten is Kiwe, which means home. So Kiwaiten is the going home star. And the reason that is is because that's the only star that's stationary in the sky, which is stationary pretty much above uh, the, north, the north, northern uh, direction.
2: And how is it used as a going-home star?
5: So once you find the uh, northerly direction, you can pretty much find any other direction. So at nighttime, if they, they see the North Star and they wanted to go east, they'd keep the, the North Star on their left shoulder and they know they'd be traveling east. And any other direction, they'd just move around and make sure, make sure that star was in the direction that they wanted to go.
2: This has been uh, such a pleasure to learn and so much to learn. I'm so grateful to you for this, Mr. Buck.
5: Thank you very much for asking me to do this.
3: That's Wilfred Buck with former CBC Manitoba host Terry McLeod. Wilfred still comes around, and he's still looking up at the stars. In fact, we just had him on the show last season, alongside our interview with Indigenous astronaut Nicole Mann. Nicole is a member of the Wailake of the Round Valley Indian tribes. In October of 2022, she rocketed into orbit, 20 years after Chickasaw astronaut John Harrington became the first Indigenous person in space. Nicole spent 157 days on the International Space Station as the mission commander. That's where they conduct research and experiments to prepare for explorations to the Moon and Mars. Here's part of our conversation from 2023, just a few months after Nicole returned to Earth.
0: 10, nine, 8, Seven, six, six five, five
3: four, 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 three, two, four, Nicole, welcome back to Earth and to Unreserved.
8: Thank you so much. It's great to be back on our planet.
3: I have to say that as a lifelong Star Trek nerd, <laughs> Trekkie uh, this is like a huge privilege and an honor to speak with you today. You might be able to see I'm actually wearing my TNG space badge.
8: I noticed it's looking, looking very good. Boop, boop. In honor of you. <laughs> Thank you. So,
3: <laughs> so take us to your floating laboratory. You spent five months there. Describe
8: that well space for us. Oh, it's, it's absolutely incredible. You know, I thought about it so much before going to a space You know, what was it going to be like? I set all these expectations and all those expectations were absolutely exceeded. It was just incredible Um, living and working on board the International Space Station. Not only are we doing some incredible science on board and maintenance upgrades to the space station, but it is so much fun just floating around in space. It feels like if you've ever had a dream um, when you were a kid that you were flying or floating, it feels just like that. It really does.
3: Oh, I imagine it does. Like feel amazing. I can't even. I can't even imagine. And as you said, your your team conducted um, hundreds of experiments. Can you walk us through a couple uh, of the kinds of experiments you did?
8: Absolutely. There's so many different experiments. Uh, a couple of my favorites. Uh, one is the biofabrication facility, or BFF, and this is where we are literally 3D printing human cells in space. And it sounds sounds like a Star Trek type situation, right? But this is the reality now. It's a it's because we're in microgravity, this laboratory, we can print the cells and they will grow and their structure will be more accurate um, than than they would if you were printing them on Earth because of the gradient of gravity, because you have to have a structure that would interfere with the cell growth, uh, because you have thermal gradients. You don't have any of this in space. And the concept is in the in the future, perhaps we can print a patch for your heart. So if you had a heart attack, you know, that muscle will not, Um, will not heal completely. And so we could patch the heart or we could at some point maybe print 3D organs. and and fly those back to Earth where they could be transplanted. So there's that side of it. There's also a lot of robotics. We have these little flying robots called astrobees and the little astrobees fly off each other with sensors. And the concept is that that can help astronauts in some of their daily activities. And that's future development for when we go to the moon and eventually Mars, it's going to be a combination of humans and robots really working together. Um, And we've got to grow plants on board too. We grew dwarf tomatoes. It was incredible to to smell the, the soil. And to smell the plants because the the smell on station is a very sterile environment. It smells a little bit, you know, very like metallic, like a hospital with some of the cleaning uh, solutions that we use. And so it was, it was really uh, amazing to smell plant life and see these, these beautiful little red tomatoes.
3: That's very cool I'm pretty sure I saw those episodes on
8: Star Trek <laughs> you might you might have yes they're a reality
3: now. <laughs> I'm sure it's a lot more complicated <laughs> than that how how does doing those kinds of experiments in space help us to prepare for future exploration
8: so some of this is technology development um, and we're trying to to develop um, you know ways that we can sustain humans deeper into space uh, so perhaps that's when we have human presence, sustained presence on the lunar surface or this journey to Mars, we could grow tomatoes. Uh, we also on board grew a yogurt and, and fermented, or and grew yeast to try to develop ways and where we could be self-sufficient in our food and our nutrients. Um, and so mm. not only, if we can grow some of our food on these long missions, uh, that will provide nutrients for our body. But there's also the psychological aspect of growing plants and kind of still being connected with your home planet while you're on a deep space exploration.
3: Wow, that's wonderful. I can't even grow tomatoes on the earth, so that's really Impressive to me.
8: <laughs> we have help. We have help from the scientists on the ground, thankfully. Lots of help. <laughs> um,
3: can, you had mentioned earlier that it's like, you know, floating, literally, when you're, you have dreams of floating mm-hmm. and flying. But can you, can you tell us um, what it was like living day to day on the International Space Station? Take me through what your typical day would be.
8: Your day, typically I woke up around six o'clock to just prepare for the day, eat breakfast, do your hygiene, look over your activities for the day. And yet 7.30, typically that kind of kicks off the day. We have, it's called a morning DPC with all of the mission controls throughout the world and all astronauts on board, just kind of, hey, review, this is the plan. Are there any changes to the plan? And then your time is literally five minute increments. Boom, 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 boom. You're scheduled. Uh, You have an hour for lunch in the middle. You have two and a half hours of exercise, uh, which includes time to to change your clothes and to clean up after exercise. And that goes until 730 at night when you have the evening DPC again with all the Mission Control Centers. Uh, So your days are Mm. so busy, but they're so fun and so engaging and so different every day. Maybe you'll be doing science in the morning. And then you're doing perhaps a um, a video chat with some school children in the afternoon, and then you're fixing um, the toilet in in the in the evening. Um, you know, and you're doing another type of a science experiment a later later on. So it keeps you certainly engaged and excited every day. And I found that your body doesn't get tired. You know, if you have a long day at work, sometimes you get home, and you're like, oh, I just need to lay down. I'm so tired. Your body doesn't get tired because you're literally. Floating around all day, but your mind will get tired. You can notice that your mind will fatigue if you have long days, day after day after day. And so, it's important that you take care of your mind as well, and you take some of those mental breaks. And you have a break on the on the weekend. And you can just look out the window, or maybe read a book, or or just or just spend some time to recharge yourself. So it's a it's an important aspect of a space flight that I didn't realize was going to be so significant. It's taking care of your mind as well.
3: Yeah, self care is important wherever you are, right?
8: Absolutely, yes. And <laughs> I couldn't imagine
3: reading a book in space. I would just want to stare out the window all the time.
8: I know, I know. I didn't read a ton. Usually, I looked out the window. That was my my favorite pass. I'm looking out the window and taking pictures, trying to trying to capture that view.
3: Oh man, that must be impossible to capture something like that.
8: It is. Yeah, it's one of those one of those things where you know photographs and video just just cannot do it justice.
3: Yeah, did you have time for for fun things? For example, I heard you did some space selfies.
8: I did say some space selfies on uh, on the spacewalk, uh, especially on the second. The first, one I did two spacewalks. On the first one, I was just, it was just so no, new. I was so focused on just getting everything done. I didn't I didn't really take a moment to just reflect um, and, and just pause. So I was really intentional about that on the second spacewalk specifically. I wanted to take more photos um, and even it was just for 30 seconds. I want to pause for 30 seconds and just look around. You know, um, I'm literally climbing outside the space station, holding on with one hand floating over the over the planet. I wanted to just live in that moment. And so I was glad that I that I took a moment to do that.
3: Nicole Mann is a member of the Wailaiki of the Round Valley Indian Tribes and the first Indigenous woman in space. That interview first played on Unreserved back in June as part of our Star People episode. It's one of many episodes we're celebrating as we head toward the end of our 10th season here on Unreserved. And you've heard this on our show before. You have to know where you come from to know where you're going. And as a show, that means looking back to see just how far we've come. We hope you've enjoyed this little jaunt down memory lane. Look out for brand new episodes of Unreserved starting next week. And make sure to follow us all the way to our very special season finale extravaganza in June. That's all our time on Radio Indigenous. This episode was produced by Kim Kasher, Laura bone Zoe Tennant, and Rhiannon Johnson. A special 10-year shout-out to the producers on the archival pieces you heard in this episode. That's Kate Friesen, Connie Walker, Maggie Moose, and Ruth Shedd. You could always find more on our website, cbc.ca slash unreserved. Download the podcast on the CBC Listen app or your favourite pod places. I'm your favourite cousin... Rosanna child, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty One Territory. going to uh. I go say.
2: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.